Hello and welcome to Mayo Clinic Talks, the opioid edition. I'm Tracy McRae and with me today is Dr. David Patchett from Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Hello once again, Dr. Patchett. Hello. Dr. Patchett is a family medicine physician, board certified in family medicine, OMT, and integrative medicine, and we'll be talking about opioids from the primary care physician perspective. So Dr. Patchett, who might be part of a special population group when you're considering opioid therapy? And the three things that uh, I think we should go through are uh, pregnant patients, the elderly, and children. I would imagine that you do not give opioids to a woman who you know is pregnant, or is that not a concern? I'm, I'm thinking she gets pregnant while she's using this opioid uh, medication. Yeah, we, you do try to avoid, if at all possible, uh, opioids in pregnancy, as there are risks um, for the fetus with the neonatal withdrawal syndrome, neural tube defects, um, congenital heart defects, um, a condition called gastroschisis, preterm delivery, and stillbirth. Hmm. I think the key here is to, is to use as little as possible uh, for a short period of time if it's needed, but to really try to use safer alternatives such as Tylenol and NSAIDs, if appropriate, in the various trimesters. Can you explain a little bit why you don't want to use it with the elderly population? The, some of the issues with the elderly population is they metabolize drugs different uh, than the standard adult population. And a lot of that is to do with um, as you age, you have differences in both renal and hepatic function. There's also change in lean muscle mass. And so the, the drugs are really metabolized differently at that age. And the key really is to keep the dose low and increase very slowly if you need it. Um, and then close monitoring of side effects is important. And um, some of those side effects that are common, most individuals know. So sedation and constipation are both common side effects. But other things you have to really watch for are endocrine dysfunction, particularly as the dose gets higher. You want to avoid those high, high doses. Um, there, is, can, there can be you know, increased risk of falls and motor vehicle accidents. And lastly, some, one that most individuals don't know about is uh, disordered uh, breathing, particularly with sleep. And so you can get kind of a form of sleep apnea uh, with certain doses of opioids. And that's just in the elderly population, or is that all adults? It's, it's more common in the elderly, but it does occur in all adults, particularly as the, do, the dose gets higher. And then really you want to avoid using sedative hypnotic medications as we discussed in the last um, podcast uh, in conjunction with opioids. And what about the youth? Uh, I would imagine uh, that they may feel inclined to hand this medication out to friends. There, there are other reasons why. We don't really understand what the effect, the full effect is on the growing brain. So I think we really have to be super careful with giving these to kids. And as you mentioned, there are problems of addiction overdose uh, in the pediatric population. Um, and so I really encourage the use of Tylenol or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, primarily in the pediatric population for, for pain control, if at all possible. Um, I mean, there are some indication for opioids uh, for sure, and, the, and when appropriate, they should be given. But what I see is often... Uh, children or parents haven't really given the child therapeutic doses of either Tylenol or an NSAID such as ibuprofen prior to moving to something like an opioid. Interestingly, 
um, a recent study showed that Tylenol and ibuprofen are as effective as opioids for pain control in pediatric population for extremity injuries, which I think that's what you see uh, fairly commonly, at least in the primary care setting from a, a pain standpoint, we see more of those extremity injuries. Oh, yeah. If you're a parent, you can appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is the kid's growing brain, because, you know, as an adolescent, it continues to uh, grow until they're in their 20s. What is understood about the effect of the opioids just on their brain development? Do we know anything about that? We don't know. We don't really understand what happens with the brain field. That's really the issue is that it's not fully understood how this affects the growing brain uh, because those receptors are in the brain and we don't know what happens. You know, certainly, particularly children who have a family history of opiate dependency or addiction or other problems with addiction, care should be taken even more in that population. Or if the youth has had issues with addiction, extreme care should be taken before giving any type of opioid. I wonder if there's anything that spans all those populations when it comes to pain. For example, does a person's diet affect their pain levels? You know, I I have seen that a lot clinically. The trials, I say, are small, but from my clinical perspective, if a patient will go on a low glycemic Mediterranean diet, that seems to help a tremendous amount for individuals because they get the inflammation down by being on a healthier diet. Some individuals have food intolerance or true food allergies, um, and, and if they have a true food allergy, then they need to eliminate the food. But if there's an intolerance, for some individuals, it's a worthwhile trial to do an allergy elimination diet and see, does that help my pain? Um, and to give that a 36-week trial sure. and see if that helps. The other thing that I, I tell my patients is that don't smoke because I have very difficult time controlling people's pains if they smoke or use tobacco products. It's and inter- then remaining physically active is important. Go ahead. It's interesting to think about that, uh, the inflammation aspect of a diet, because most people don't even consider, you know, how much sugar or sodium is in the diet that they're uh, consuming. But when you look at the inflammation that your diet might contribute to your body. Do you have a do you have a lot of patients who are interested in going to? Well, I will change the way that I'm eating if it affects my pain level, or are they just say, ah, oh, just give me some medication instead? I think I see both. Right, I see some people that just want the easy solution, don't want to change their diet. Sugar can be very inflammatory, particularly when eaten at high dosages. And because you get a lot of changes in the way your blood sugars rise and fall when you eat a lot of sugar, it changes mood too. And we already know that you know, depression and anxiety are higher among chronic pain patients. So, you know, a healthy diet goes a long way towards health, and that um, is the same in chronic pain patients. That's amazing. Yeah, diet related to so many different things, isn't it? Yeah. Go figure. It's the fuel, right? That's right. <laughs> how, how often do you uh, reassess the risks and benefits during continual opioid therapy? Is it do you see a patient once a week or once a month? What do you do? So in the initial opioid titration time period, you really want to see them every one to four weeks to reevaluate. If you're going to place a patient on chronic opioid therapy, then you need to see them um, quarterly or more frequently um, if the person is you know, has higher risk for abuse or they're having problems with side effects. 
those are uh, situations where you want to see them more frequently. Sure. Let's talk about tapering a little bit more. Um, what are the indications to taper a patient off of an opioid or an opioid therapy? And are there recommendations or best practices on how to do this? Um, there are, there are um, recommendations and best practices. The first is direct tapering of opioid therapy is indicated for those on long-term chronic opioid therapy in a setting where they're not really getting any benefit from the opiates. So typically, you know, if you have a person that you've given a 90-day trial and there's been no improvement in their pain, then opiates are unlikely to be effective and you should directly ta- uh, taper at that time. Is there, is there a thing where it can kind of plateau out, you know, if it's for a week or 10 days and then it's, the medication is not as helpful? You know, there is some dependency and risk of increasing the dosage, mm. and that typically occurs more with long-term usage than, you know, in the first few months. So in the first few months, if you find no benefit, then they're, they're unlikely to benefit, and you should uh, taper off. Or, you know, the patients are experiencing significant side effects, uh, or they just don't no longer want to remain on treatment. Sure. All right, so let's go back to tapering. What about some of the medications might be more long-acting or the short-acting? Which one do you taper first? So you, you typically wanted to remove the long-acting first and then leave the short-acting. You know, in the past, they felt that long-acting was better and safer, but we don't actually see that. We see that really the, the issue is you know, that there's no good support for long-acting medications in a lot of these patients. For long-term patients without aberrant uh, drug-related behavior, um, slowly reduce the dose by 10% of the original dose per week, um, which helps to reduce the withdrawal symptoms. For patients with urgent tapering needs or aberrant drug-related behavior, you can expect tapering over 30 to 40 days. Uh, Do not use benzodiazepines to curb symptoms during the taper, and consider pre-existing conditions that may increase the risk of failure, uncontrolled high blood pressure, chronic diarrhea, high output conditions, adrenal suppression, and with use of daily steroids, et cetera. Can you uh, talk about opioid withdrawal? What is it like and what are the symptoms? So it depends on the individual and and the, the dose and the duration they've been on the opioid for. Um, and so the typical symptoms are going to be, you know, sweating, agitation, anxiety, um, uh, palpitations, uh, sometimes some nausea and vomiting that can occur. Um, and so you can use a clinical opioid withdrawal scale to determine what the severity is in these patients. Uh, 5 to 12 is mild, 13 to 24 is moderate. 25 to 36 is moderate severe, and greater than 36 is severe. And really the goal is to keep them in the mild range um, and monitor their blood pressure and their heart rate. Certainly if, the, if, if you're getting higher up, sometimes those patients will need IV fluids and more acute management for their withdrawal symptoms. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We have been talking about opioid prescribing for primary care practice with Dr. David Patchett from Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share with a friend. Healthcare professionals looking to claim CME credit for this podcast can go to ce.mayo.edu slash opioid PC and register. That's ce.mayo.edu slash opioid PC. 
Thank you, Dr. Patchett. Thank you. 